as the retreat is nearing its end, I'd like to talk a little bit about daily life practice. I'd like to speak about the cultivation of a wholesome, cheerful, and serene inner attitude in our everyday life. Is any good? Uh, I just found this uh, poem by Bert Brecht. Oh, it's in German. (laughs) 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 I read it anyway. (laughs) Sorry, apologize for those who don't get it. I don't even know if it fits here, but I like it. Ich sitze am Straßenhang. Der Fahrer wechselt das Rad. Ich bin nicht gehen, wo ich herkomme. Ich bin nicht gehen, wo ich hinfahre. Warum sehe ich den Radwechsel mit Ungeduld? Somehow it's something to do with daily life practice. As we know well, we don't have that much control over what life will bring us. What the weather is up to, how our work situation will develop, what will happen to our friends and loved ones, and how they will relate to us. It can turn from wonderful to awful any moment, and vice versa. Where we do have some choice, if we are awake and present enough, is with regards to how we meet all these changing circumstances of life. Dharma practice is, here in Rajit, as much as in daily life, what enables us to have some influence on the inner attitude with which we meet life, on the inner atmosphere which we produce throughout our days. So in daily life we may do our regular daily sittings at home, do some mindfulness, perhaps some calming of the mind, then we take it off done for today. Good. It might be that this is not enough, as many of us know. In fact, I would like to take the risk of making a radical statement here at the retreat. Perhaps what matters most in life has not that much to do with meditation. Maybe it's something much more important than meditation. I've met wonderful, wise, and deeply caring people who didn't know a thing about meditation. If meditation helps to deepen our wisdom in a down-to-earth, in a real way, fantastic. If it makes us more compassionate beings. Wonderful. If not, what's the point? Mm -hmm. 
there's a number of aspects or qualities which do make a difference in our life if we practice them. And here I would like to talk about six of them. And there are more than that and some equally important. But for now, let's look at these ones. The qualities I find relevant for the cultivation of wholesome and cheerful mind states are the following ones. One is altruistic or compassionate motivation in our life. One is generosity. One is equanimity. One is wise humor. One is something like non-complexity in terms of expectations and ideas about things. And the sixth one is gratefulness, appreciation, and joy. First, I would like to look at uh, an altruistic or compassionate outlook in life. This refers to an inner attitude which increasingly cares for the welfare of others and is a bit less concerned about one's own. Though this is not one of the easiest of all spiritual practices, it is one of the most effective ones, powerful ones. And I've been talking about this last week, and I think in the morning sittings, Ursula has been talking about it. An altruistic inner attitude makes our heart and our day more open and wide. On the other hand, the self-centeredness is the cause for inner narrowness and limitation. An American Zen teacher said, in the self-centered, egocentric mode, we believe to be this little piece of crap around which the entire universe revolves. There seems to be a lack of self-appreciation and from that then comes a need to see oneself at the center of things. And this we sometimes don't notice. We don't see that we would have six billion centers of the universe counting only the humans on this earth. When we have a cold or when our bus or tube or plane is a bit late, when we don't get the job we wanted, when our partner leaves, when the tax bill comes and turns out to be higher than we thought, which it does sometimes, then it's not that hard. It's not half as tragical. It's not really so irritating if we keep things in perspective, if we can see it in relation to the rest of humanity. For example, while we suffer from hay fever or some other allergy, which can be pretty bad. Six people, usually children, die 
per minute because they don't have access to clear water, to clean water. While our tram or bus is nine minutes late or is stuck in a traffic jam, innumerable people in this world don't have access to transportation at all. Millions who don't. When our attention increasingly turns to others, our own pleasure and pain doesn't matter so much, becomes somewhat less important. In this way, we unburden ourselves. We begin to get out of our own way. And this creates inner spaciousness. There's more light, there's more serenity, more ease. We can learn this attitude. We can practice it. Just like parents who are willing and able to put the welfare of their children above their own more selfish interests and realize it makes them quite happy, or if the children are in a difficult situation, it makes them more compassionate. And we can see all beings as our children, or as a, our close relatives, or as family. And Chantideva wrote, the, child, the childish are constantly concerned with themselves. The Buddhas at all times care for others. Just, just look at the difference between them. So an altruistic attitude creates a sense of inner spaciousness, ease, and connectedness. Second quality, generosity helps too. And generosity is not a difficult practice, unlike altruistic attitude. But here too, though often we're busy and concerned with what we can get out of a situation for ourselves, <clears throat> what we could acquire, buy, gain, own, in terms of more money, of materials, of furnishings, of clothes, of pleasures and fun, of entertainment, of cultural events, of books, of CDs, of videos, or DVDs, or games, or, or get more in terms of attention, get more affection, get more respect or status or honor or endless list of things I want for myself. And that can be quite trying and quite tiresome and often also not very wholesome because the unwholesome opposites of generosity are at work, namely Desire, craving, longing, addiction, attachment, hoarding, even stinginess. That's when there's an inner feeling of shortage whenever these are in operation. In this mode, there's a sense of inner poverty, independently of how much we actually have, how much we actually own. It's completely different whenever... We are generous, big-hearted, open-handed, 
charitable, benevolent, hospitable, tolerant. That in itself is already a wholesome, happy and serene attitude of life. Then there is a sense of connectedness and of bonding. We feel connected to those we have been generous towards, whether it's with material things or attention or affection or whatever it is that we offer. Whenever we are generous, there's a sense of inner wealth, of abundance. Whether we give money to a street musician or give a gift to a child or pass on our knowledge or show someone the way or offer a friendly hello or give attentiveness to our partner or send our entire fortune to Namibia, we feel abundance if it's genuine generosity. We feel joy, we feel serenity and ease. And we plant the seed for wholesome actions in our hearts. And I will retell the stories, the story which many of you have heard many times, and you probably will hear it some more times. I just like it so much, and those who haven't heard it, they really should hear it. <laughs> it's always an excuse. I used to say that it supposed to have happened, really happened. I'm not so sure anymore. But anyway, it's a, a golfer, apparently a well-known golfer. He ch- just had won a tournament. And uh, at the tournament, he got a big sum of money for the first prize. And when he left the club and the place there and went to his car, a young woman holding a baby approached him. And she said, please help me. I have no husband, no job, no money, and my baby is very ill and needs treatment at the hospital. He was moved, and right there he gave her his prize money, all he had. And when the next day or so he came back to the club, and they heard about it, and they said, you know, this woman actually is a swindler. That's what she's doing. Her baby isn't ill at all. It's perfectly healthy and well. And he lit up and said, best news in weeks. (laughs) That's meta. That's meta. It's worth telling it again, isn't it? Some of you may be familiar with this radical verse about generosity from Buddhist texts. It shows how much our thinking usually is upside down and it shows what the actual facts are. What the Buddha points at here starts to make sense when we begin to understand that it's the inner attitudes and tendencies of heart and mind which are responsible for our happiness and well-being and not outer circumstances or our possessions. So here's the text. What we give away is ours. What we keep at home is not ours. What we give away is of value. 
what we keep at home is of no value. What we give away, we don't need to protect. What we keep at home, we need to protect. What we give away causes no worry. What we keep at home causes worries. What we give away gives inexhaustible wealth. What we keep at home will be exhausted. What we keep at home leads to negativity. What we give away leads directly to enlightenment. So far the Buddha. I think the exact same statement, but much shorter, is on one of the CDs of the pop band Young Radicals. It says, you get what you give. I think that's cool. (laughs) Get what you give. In that respect, I've been very inspired by my late Indian Vipassana teacher, Anagarika Manindra, who passed away about three years ago now. He never had any possessions. His pockets had big holes. Whatever found the way into them was immediately passed on and shared. Remember he was uh, in Massachusetts at the long retreat once and they afterwards said he went back with seven suitcases because he got all the stuff you can get, you know, all the, the clothes and the shoes and everything you can get in the West for free because people don't want it anymore. He carried it all to Kolkata because he knew people would be so happy about it. He was so easy about passing on things, giving things. And that's no easy thing if you live in Calcutta among the very poor of India, which he did. And yet he was one of the most cheerful and easygoing people I've known. So there's altruistic motivation, there's generosity. Equanimity helps, as we all know. So often we're plagued by reactivity. This constant attachment, grasping to what is pleasant, is tiresome. Even with small things. Constant desire and craving and expectation for what may be pleasant in the future. It's tiresome. Constant aversion, irritation, anger, hatred against what's unpleasant or painful. It's really tiresome. And constant worry and fear of what possibly may be unpleasant or painful in the future. It's tiresome. And it's bad enough that we have to experience what's unpleasant and painful in life. And there's no way out. Bad enough that pleasant experience keeps on changing and disappearing. But to react in addition to it with unwholesome, unhelpful feelings, emotions, thoughts, and actions. That's extremely tiresome. It's far from a wholesome, happy, and serene way of living one's life. Equanimity is the ultimate solution. Equanimity is the quality of heart and mind that makes inner freedom possible. The well-known Zen verse perhaps conveys a sense of it. 
Let the bird fly in the boundless sky of your equanimity. Free the fish in the bottomless ocean of your tolerance. It's really all all about inner spaciousness. So what does this equanimity or inner balance consist of? It comes about through accepting and letting go. Nothing new, really. It's acceptance or letting be of the undesirable, the tiresome, the unpleasant, any unwanted experience or situation. It's unpleasant enough when our colleague at work is unfriendly, when the coffee is cold, when the weather is wet and freezing, when in addition we produce anger, disappointment and a bad mood. It's really not very helpful. Why do we keep on doing this? I won't say over and over again, but more than necessary. Isn't it amazing? Acceptance would be the easiest and most practical solution. Accept, problem solved. Of course, we can lodge a complaint with the waiter if we think it's useful, but, but to get upset, it won't help in any case. It doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we don't need to be angry to do something. We can be equanimous, and if it's wise, or if we wish to do so, we can still do things. We think we should do something because it's helpful. We can do it. The other way around, letting go. It's unpleasant enough when our friendly colleague leaves the job, when our exciting Saturday night is over, when the precious rose fades, when pleasant and beautiful things pass, when in addition we produce attachment, disappointment and grief. It's really not very helpful. Why do we keep on doing this? Isn't it amazing? Letting go would be the easiest and most practical solution. Let go, problem solved. And of course, very often it's very obviously not so easy or not easy at all. And yet we need to remember that possibility right in the moment. And sometimes it's very big things and we think it's too big to let go of it. But maybe in that very moment it's just a thought, it's just one feeling that's difficult. Maybe we can accept that. Or if it has passed and it's something we would like, maybe we can just let go that much at that time. To do it over and over again. We don't need to be deeply enlightened and profoundly equanimous to make our life wholesome, more happy, and more easy. But some equanimity definitely helps. And here's a description. If you can sit quietly after difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, if you can see your own neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy. 
if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate, if you can fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you can always find contentment just where you are, you are probably a dog. <laughs> This is altruistic motivation or compassionate motivation. There's generosity. There's equanimity. Wise humor helps. So often we take ourselves that serious. When everything works out the way we wish for, okay, then we're happy and we're cheerful. But sometimes not even then. We're so serious or grim that we forget that we're actually fine. Could that be a Swiss thing, especially? (laughs) (laughs) But then especially when we have or get what we'd rather not have, or when we don't have, don't get what we really would like to have. Can we smile then? Can we smile in a situation where we are in trouble ourselves? I think here's where the art of wise humor comes in. Humor create, uh, helps us to create some distance so we can see compared to the universe, compared to history from the Big Bang to the collapse of the cosmos, my momentary problem is not really that enormous. And at this point, I have to confess that I have a language problem. When I translated this talk into English, when I got to this place here, I found that all the one-liners I had that I think were really good, they just don't work in English. They're puns playing on words, and you can't ever translate that. But it seems weird to talk about humor without saying anything funny, isn't it? (laughs) So... I thought I'll tell you a profound story which goes a seeker of truth decided to inquire into the meaning of life he set out on a long troublesome journey to the Himalayas to find his guru he climbed steep mountains and crossed dangerous torrents at last with great efforts and hardship he found the guru who lived in a cave Completely exhausted but happy, he did his prostrations, his bowing. Then proceeded to ask the guru, tell me, what is the meaning of life? Life is like an onion, the master replied. Life is like an onion? (laughs) Cried the man in utter disappointment. In it done all this working, climbing, coming there, spent weeks and months. All right, all right, the guru said, then life is not like an onion. (laughs) I'm not sure what it's telling us, but I thought I had to say something funny. Humor opens and widens our perspective with respect to ourselves, 
and all of life. And yet it isn't the humor at someone else's expense. You know, humor that makes fun of someone else, a person or a group, often it's a whole group of people, even though admittedly that can be really funny too sometimes. <laughs> it's widespread, but not exactly wholesome. It's not really wise. Humor, being able to laugh about oneself, that's very freeing, lightening, easy, easying. Lao Tzu said about the Tao, the all, the entire universe. If one cannot laugh about it, it cannot be called the Tao. Altruistic attitude, generosity, equanimity, wise humor. An aspect that I find very important but can't name precisely is something like non-complexity or maybe simplicity. Instead of complex demands, expectations and attachment to our ideas how things should be, something like that. In a way, it's, it's the same point as the previous one on equanimity. Here it's mostly about smaller things of daily life and I'll try to illustrate it through examples. Vacation on the beach, on the ocean. Wonderful, finally our vacation is here. We fly there, wherever. Walk down to the beach and find out that it's not the sand beach. It's gravel, you know, this big gravel. It happens some places. It wasn't mentioned in the prospect, the brochure that we got from the travel agent. It looked quite white. And are we free enough to say sand would have been nicer to play on, to lie on? But let's enjoy our vacation rather than having them ruined by a few square meters of gravel. <laughs> and we're maybe not doing that, but it's amazing how one can take a small little thing that doesn't work out and ruin one's day. We're still there on the ocean. We expected a room with a view onto the ocean. <laughs> we get one at the back looking into the road busy with traffic. And we can't change the room because the hotel is booked out. Can we still enjoy our vacation? Right from that moment on when we see we can't change it, we can book something else, drop it. Monday morning, tight full schedule. We count on the parking space that's usually still vacant at that time. Today it's taken, they're all taken. Full, complete, this is okay. Or is half of our Monday ruined? We have a doctor's appointment. Usually there are about three or four people waiting. Today it's 11. Is that okay? We buy tulip bulbs, red tulips. You know, we plant them in fall, do all the right things. Spring comes and what do we see? <laughs> Yellow tulips have come up. On the package, they were red. <laughs> and yellow tulips are gross, <laughs> ugly. 
All of spring is ruined. <laughs> it's funny, but we do that sometimes, don't we? Here's the story of the lawn and the dandelion. The man who took great pride in his lawn, he found himself with a large crop of dandelions. So I blew him up. And the story must come from England, where the perfect, <laughs> where the perfect lawn was invented. <laughs> the man tried every method he knew to get rid of the dandelion. Still, they plagued him. Finally, he wrote the Department of Agriculture. He enumerated all the things he had tried and closed his letter with the question, what shall I do now? In due course, the reply came, we suggest you learn to love them. <laughs> there are plenty of little things in life. We have an idea of how they should be. We hardly even notice, you know, in small things, how often that happens. At work, with friends, when eating, with food, especially with food, with our roommates, with the meditation teachers, driving in the traffic, anything, anywhere. How long do we hold on to our unfulfilled ideas of how it should be? How quickly can we let go? How quickly are we at ease again? And it's something I mention in most of the closing talks I give. More and more I see how much, um, maybe because of this uh, uh, retreat uh, mode, we make concentration as the measure of our success. And then if we're already not so concentrated during the retreat, or we're definitely less than we would like to be. Then at home, you know, being as busy as most of us are, it'll be less. And making that uh, the measure, the yardstick of our practice for years and years and years is not very helpful. It's okay for a few people who, who are gifted with concentration, but most of us, we could take another yardstick, and this is one. How quickly can I let go and be happy again? How fast do I notice? Now it's time to accept. And then how willing I am to actually accept. No problem. And I think that's it. If we want, we don't need to have yardsticks, but the way we are, we probably do it anyway. So that could be an interesting one, helpful, helpful one. And that's directly related to our peace. Samadhi is if we can, you know, be in it. But if not, it's not so helpful to take that as a measure. Accepting, letting go quickly, right away, Something we train here makes life a lot easier, a lot simpler, and much more enjoyable. Altruistic attitude, generosity, equanimity, wise humor, non-complexity with regards to our ideas and expectations. Last one, gratefulness. Appreciation and symp sympathetic joy help. Mudita in Pali. One of the most beautiful, most simple, and most pleasant practices. Opportunities for it arise constantly in our day. Someone is laughing. Someone is joyful. 
someone is friendly with someone else, it doesn't need to be us. Someone has been winning. Someone has success. Someone receives praise. Someone is healthy. There's actually plenty of reason to rejoice. A person is generous. Someone is honest. Someone is wise and serene. Plenty of reason for appreciation. We have a comfortable house or apartment or a just okay apartment. We have enough to eat. The sky doesn't fall on our head. All good reasons to be grateful. The problem is that we forget. Atiknatan apparently said, you know, you should re rejoice in the toothache you don't have. Makes it even more simple. <laughs> we forget, like Joe, the village priest and his rather cynical friend Joe are strolling through a beautiful snowed-in landscape. And the priest, very touched, exclaims in awe, Look, isn't it wonderful how God had this lake frozen? Whereupon Joe remarks, No big achievement in winter. <laughs> so the question is, do we take things for granted? Or can we see Gratefulness, appreciation, rejoicing, they're extremely precious. The Dalai Lama says, if we can rejoice in the good qualities and deeds of others, we automatically take part in the powerful energy that radiates from these good qualities. This quality of appreciation and sympathetic joy also can be cultivated can be practiced. Often it's quite difficult for us to rejoice in others' happiness, in others' goodness, as much as in ours, because we may have quite a lack of genuine respect and appreciation for ourselves, for our own good qualities. Perhaps the Judeo-Christian, Occidental, Western cultural conditioning, or whatever it is. And the problem is the more we feel worthless at some deeper level, the less respect and appreciation we have for ourselves, the more we'll be self-centered. They seem to go together somehow. The more appreciation there is, the more we feel connected with life as a whole. That's why it's so important to work with self-appreciation so much more uplifting than always judging ourselves. Rumi says, when you go to a garden, do you look at thorns or at flowers? Spend more time with roses and jasmine. We can begin by reflecting on and then rejoicing in our own good qualities of heart, of mind, and then do the same with those of others. Something we do at the around 9.30 in that 8.45 sitting. Think of our 
interest in life, in understanding ourselves, understanding each other. We can rejoice in the qualities we generate here as we do in the evening. Investigation of reality, our patience, our perseverance. We can be down on us on the patience we don't have yet, but we can appreciate what we do have. And it's amazing, you know, the patience we have just at the fact of sitting and walking here. Rejoice in our enthusiasm, collectedness, insights, wisdom, our love and care and compassion, our sympathetic joy, generosity, trust, equanimity, and so forth. They're fabulous qualities. We all begin to radiate, to shine forth as we practice. Then we can reflect on our own wholesome and positive deeds and actions. Perhaps even to write it down. Could be anything wholesome. Our efforts to care for our children, their education, the work we do to support our family, supporting relatives, taking care of all parents in various ways, our work supporting others, work as managers, as therapists, as teachers, as cooks, as bakers, as farmers, as caretakers, whatever, even when we get a salary for doing it depending on our motivation, if we do it out of care and caring. To rejoice in all the small or big gifts we make, cakes or flowers, contributions of any kind. Rejoice in ethical conduct. Rejoice in the intention not to kill, not to harm beings, not to take what isn't given to us. Rejoice in our sensibility and clarity in intimate relationships, sensibility in dealing with drugs, alcohol, money, power. And there may be areas where we're sometimes not so sensitive or have been fools. So it's not to pick out those and then be down on us, but pick out the ones we have been doing quite well. Rejoice in our honesty. Plenty of reason respect, for appreciation, for joy. fact of doing retreats, even such long retreats, fact of reading, studying Dharma books, may, may be being concerned for human rights, writing letters for amnesty, whatever it is. Simply rejoicing for being friendly with our difficult neighbor, and if our neighbor is not difficult, rejoicing in being friendly with our friendly neighbor. <laughs> Great, too. Encouraging others, praising others. million ways, million reasons for appreciation and for rejoicing. And then we find it easier to do the same with respect to others. Appreciating their wholesome, positive deeds and actions. To try to make it uh, regular practice becomes great fun. And we don't need samadhi, we don't need incredible mindfulness, we don't need all this stuff. <laughs> Somebody is happy and then we could be happy if we get the, the what is it, the neck. 
reflecting on good qualities, reflecting on good actions. And the third is to reflect about our own happiness, or happinesses, our own well-being, our successes in various areas, our good fortune, and rejoice it, appreciate it. And then again, do this with others' happiness, with others' well-being, with others' successes. We're often simply not used to see it simply unfamiliar. It's easier to see others suffering and that's why also compassion is a little more familiar to us. We see suffering and our heart opens and there's compassion. In some areas with some people we're used to joy also. We see they're happy. It's easy. But in general in the world we, I mean, if you look at the newspaper it's even hard to find something that's reported that you can rejoice in. It's such a tendency to, to look what's difficult, what's tough, what's not okay. So in this we look at the more worldly things perhaps first. We can rejoice in maybe a good family or relationship situation, maybe a good job or maybe material ease or political freedom we have here. Or health plenty of reason to rejoice. And then we could look or read the Mangala Sutta, a discourse by the Buddha on blessings. It's on what is valuable and beneficial in life. And many of the inner qualities we've seen before, we've talked about, are mentioned as special blessings. And then after having listed them, it goes on saying, the greatest blessings are to be content and grateful, to hear the Dharma at the right time, to deeply understand the noble truths of suffering and of its end, to realize liberation, the unconditioned. This is the highest blessing. Heart and mind unshaken by worldly states, sorrowless, stainless and secure. This is the highest blessing. Those who live in this way are everywhere unshakable and find well-being everywhere. Theirs is the highest blessing. Eventually we can perhaps follow the advice of the Tibetan Lama Tsoni Rinpoche who comes and teaches here sometimes. He says, be happy without reason. It's all a matter of practice. Altruistic motivation, generosity, equanimity, wise humor, non-complexity, appreciation, or number seven, being happy without reason. All ways of cultivating a wholesome, happy attitude of ease in our day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.